0: Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge Better understanding and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each
1: show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor please like, share, and follow. Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. episode of focus ed we invite expert guests to join us and this episode we have dr stephanie Arzanetti height with a focus on leading collective efficacy in schools steph's wide ranging career began as a pre-digital drawing board marketing designer she eventually became an award-winning art director developing unique approaches to marketing by harnessing new possibilities offered by emerging technology solutions in that industry. After a decade, Steph switched careers, earning both a master's and a doctorate in educational leadership from the University of Pennsylvania. Over the years, she has taught students ranging from the ages of five to 75. She became a school administrator and she headed up An international school in the UK. In 2009, Steph moved into the learning and development field and began to design and facilitate professional learning experiences for a range of organizations. She now works worldwide on process design and change initiatives with a particular focus on building collective efficacy, which we're going to be talking about today. Steph's customized support enables groups to collaborate and build team capacity to address both small and large-scale improvement needs. We hope you enjoy this episode of Focus Ed, and don't forget to like, share, and follow. You can always get more content by following the schoolhouse302.com. Go to the site, click on follow. All right, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today on Focus Ed.
2: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's great. We're going to jump right in. We have our live audience with us and also our audience at home. And so we want to start with the topic of your book. You wrote a book called Leading Collective Efficacy. Let's start with the book and then get into some of your other experiences in schools. So why don't you tell us why you wrote the book, what it means to you, but also what you want educators to take from the message.
2: So I co-authored this book with Dr. Jenny Donahue. And so fans of Collective Efficacy will know that she's been one of the leading researchers in the world on the topic of collective efficacy, very specifically in schools. And we got to know each other by ending up working on a couple of projects together. And one of the things that I noticed with a lot of the groups I was working with, particularly in schools, that over time, folks were coming to me in and saying, so Steph, you know, we kind of got the message that collective efficacy is really important. Well, Now what we want to know is how do we actually make it happen? How do we actually construct it? How do we actually do it? So we saw this kind of tipping point where there was a general awareness, particularly in North America, and it was time to really move into analyzing the places that were intentional about building collective efficacy and tell their stories. So I approached Jenny with the idea of doing kind of a case study type book. So it's, it's, it's not super scientific research, it's more storytelling in terms of finding some different schools and districts. Different. We were really interested in different sizes, different locations, elementary schools, high schools, you know, getting that whole range of schools that have been really intentional about building collective efficacy and sharing their success as models or guides for others to follow. And so that's really the genesis of the book and it was a lot of fun to write.
0: Stephanie, just to follow up on that, what are some key takeaways? We have a lot of leaders on this call, people very interested in this work. I don't think anybody denies the power of collective efficacy, however, it is elusive. You know, if, you know, we see it through PLCs, we see it in different ways, but it is elusive. As a leader, if they're going to do something, a great entry point to make sure this is done, you know, what did you find? These schools that were getting it done right, um, what did you find in your research, touching base with these schools, and then what advice would you give our audience? Like, look, this is what I would do starting tomorrow to build collective efficacy.
2: Yeah, so Michael Fullen very kindly wrote us a lovely little endorsement, and he used the term simplexity because it is. We, we created a little graphic to go with the book that kind of highlights the five big conditions that build collective efficacy. So I invite people to kind of take that first look, and I think it becomes fairly obvious why it's important. We, we obviously rely a lot on Professor Hattie's research, the effect size research, where it continues to come out as the most important thing we can do uh, to impact student achievement in a positive way. And then we've got these five conditions, and it seems really simple on the surface. You know, you build teacher cohesive knowledge, you empower the teachers, you get some goal consensus going, you embed some reflective, reflective practices, and then surround all of that with really supportive leadership. And so, on the face of it, that sounds very simple, right? So, that was the simple part of complexity. Then the reality is, how do you actually make it happen? So, you have to really dive in deep. And I think the number one piece of advice I would give to school leaders is once you've wrapped your head around why it's important and what the conditions are that build collective efficacy, you have to first take a really hard look at your context because you cannot look at the case studies in our book and say, well, we're just gonna try what Maine Township tried or we're just gonna try what Linden School District tried. You can't just pick up their efforts and wholesale plunk them into your environment and expect them to be successful. Context is absolutely the most essential ingredient is what's really happening locally That we want to work on, that we want to focus on. And when I start working with any educational institution, whether it's a small school or a large district, the very first question I I ask is: you know, now that we understand what collective efficacy is, let's look at these different conditions and think about what's actually happening in your school in your district, because you're probably already doing some of this work, right? So often we find that it's very piecemeal. It's, you know, you got a, a nice little effort going on in one school, but the rest of the district doesn't know about it. Or you've got a team of teachers that are working really well building collective efficacy, but it's not kind of permeating out to the rest of the school. And so it's kind of digging in and finding those examples within the context that we can grow, and then thinking about the conditions that maybe we haven't attended to. So one of my favorite examples is empowered teachers. So there's lots of really good research that when teachers have a voice at the decision-making table in schools, good things end up happening for students. There's a really nice tight correlation. The research really supports that. And so that's one of my favorite questions to ask schools. What is the role of teachers and teacher leadership in your school or your district? That's a fabulous place to start. Start by asking that question and really digging in and finding out.
1: And once you learn a little bit more about a school and you ask that question, what then becomes your entry point for coaching the principal or coaching groups of teachers? I mean, where do you start when you say, all right, I've got a little bit of data. I know about kind of the context. We're going to we're going to jump right in.
2: So this is where I my my style of work with schools is not always the, the most it's not for everybody. Let's just put it that way, because I do not provide a recipe book or a roadmap or, you know, kind of a step by step handbook. Because it goes all the way back to when I did my doctoral research, you know, those are appealing, we feel like we're really doing something when we follow a recipe, often those don't really result in in the changes that we're looking for. So I really believe strongly in participatory processes. Um, and so, when I come into a district, the first thing I do is talk about my style and how they're going to be doing all of the work. I'm there to coach and facilitate and get them to that endpoint that they're looking for. But they're going to be the ones digging in and doing all the hard work. I am not a consultant who comes in and just tells you what to do. So that's kind of the first part to think about. And then, if you you know if you consider this what I mentioned before about context being so critical, that really goes hand in hand. We have to respect the local context. So when we learn about what the story really is, what's actually really happening here in our school or in our district or in our state. I mean, this is scalable at, you know and through lots of different levels. Then the question becomes, well, what do we wanna do about it, right? So we as a school team, we as a district, we have to have that investment in it. So it's not for Steph to come in and say, here's what you should try. I mean, I certainly have good stories I can tell that you can learn from. I've got advice I can offer in the end, the decisions have to be made locally. And so I do help facilitate that. I have lots of different structures I use to engage people in really deep conversations, to create their own data, gather their own data, and then act on that in a meaningful way. The kind of approaches I feature in the book is one called opening classroom doors, which I've worked, I've used in a number of different districts. And it's a kind of a riff off of mashing up instructional rounds and walkthroughs. And, you know, I go into great detail about how to do that in the book. But one of the important things to realize is while I've done this in lots of different districts, it looks different in each location, right? We've got a little bit of a spin, you know, where people go, who gets involved, how we, you know, get the work started really depends on what what the current story is in the local district. So it's one of those kind of delegate balancing acts, right? There's some Past practices we can look to to follow, but we don't want to rely on them too heavily because every context is so unique.
0: Stephanie and I appreciate that being tailored to the individual schools. I, I think everybody would agree that every school system, every school is unique. If this is going to be, you know, em- empowering this staff and using their talents, which it's all about, right? What have you seen though as some of the immediate hurdles? And, you know, either from the the collaboration, whether it is taking advantage of some of the opportunities to get in classrooms, you know, but what if some of the hurdles, because what I have found too, is sometimes, you know, our greatest strengths also then become our weakness when it comes to collective group effort in schools. For some reason, like the, the dynamo teacher isn't always necessarily the most collaborative And so how do we have, you know, what are some of those hurdles that you have to get past in order to make this like really a recipe for success?
2: It always, you know, comes down to this idea. What you made me think of was the principal who says, oh, I wish I could just clone this teacher. And what you might have is then a couple of individual superstars who never talk to each other. Right. And so that can be really disastrous. So to kind of build on that idea First off, we have to actually understand what we mean by collective efficacy. And so collective efficacy is a perception that together we have the power to overcome obstacles that face our students. So one of the favorite pieces of data I like to share from Professor Hattie's work is the effect size, right? So we know effect size tells us the potential for something to impact you know, a student's achievement. And of course, we know that things like socioeconomic status and parental involvement, they have a pretty high impact. However, collective efficacy is more than double that. So if you think about those things that are out of our control, collective efficacy is something we can control. That being said, collective efficacy is based on belief. So the very first thing we have to start kind of working on is what do we actually believe in our schools? So it's not just to say, it's not enough to just say, hey, let's do some team building activities. We feel really good about working together. It's really about getting at those fundamental understandings of what is actually going on in our school or our district, right? What is the learning experience for our students truly? Not what the adults say it should be, or we're trying to do, but what is the actual experience? really getting a sense of that, which is why I, I talk about this idea of opening classroom doors where we get teachers into classrooms to watch students in action, because you start to then really understand what's actually happening for students. Then we have to have some really good conversations about unpacking that. Is this the experience that's gonna provide the engagement that we want for our students? Is this what we actually want our students to experience? And if not, because there was always room, probably room for improvement, this is a tough business, what do we collectively want to do about it? And so it's that idea of collective response that is such an important piece to build. And I think that's one of those hurdles that you're talking about is how do we actually do that together? So one of the conditions for um, building collective efficacy is, is this condition called gold consensus. And that's one of the toughest ones to address because I think when you say the words gold consensus in everybody's head pops an image of what they think that means. And often what people think it means is that we are unanimous, we have a vision, there's a school mission statement, we're all driving towards it. Well, we take a lot of pains in the book to talk about the fact that goal consensus is actually a process. It's a process that we bring everybody through, where we talk about what would actually represent that long-term vision of success, and what are those benchmarks along the way that let us get there. Now, doing that with a large group so that you've got everybody collectively working on it together is really tough, right? It's easy to go into a back room with three people and say, here's our, here's our goal, here's our vision, plunk it down for everybody to work on. There's no buy-in, there's no process, right? There's really no process there. So that's one of the, I think, the biggest hurdles that I you know, encounter when I'm working with schools. And this is why I mentioned that I'm a big believer in participatory processes. So I'm an art of hosting practitioner where we have a number of structures and protocols we use to engage people in large scale conversations so that all voices can be heard. So we start talking about these hurdles. One of the most important things we can do is make sure we get every voice at the table. And we even ask constantly who's missing, right? Who's not here that needs to be a part of this discussion? Who's not here that needs to be helping us to identify these worthwhile goals? So that big hurdle is how do we actually get everybody involved? And then how do we work on perception, right? It's about belief and perception. That's tough stuff. That's why Michael Fullan called it simplexity, right? So the idea is simple, but the doing it is really, really tough. So it takes a certain kind of leader. You know, It takes a leader that believes in participatory process, believes in cultivating leadership amongst the teaching staff believes in involving everyone right from the get-go. And we just don't find that everywhere. I don't know, I don't know how well all leaders are prepared. I think sometimes that's uncomfortable work for leaders because you're really giving over a lot of the thinking and the action to others. So those are some of the big hurdles that, you know, and I provide a bit of leadership coaching along the way with the structures to kind of help districts through that.
1: I'm so glad that you bring up the power of beliefs and just the effect that that has on student achievement and even the student beliefs, right? Another one of those high effect size strategies is teacher credibility. And that comes from what students believe about their teachers, And so you talked about student achievement coming to, you know, that that shared belief through a participatory process. I wonder if you could touch on equity as well, because that's in the subtitle. And so student achievement and equity, what does the collective efficacy do for us in terms of equity in our schools?
2: So I'm going to be in full disclosure, when Jenny and I first started working on this book, we were a little bit blind to the equity issue. And we did, you know, we're both, let's be honest, we're both white women and we weren't sure if this was even a place for us, like this was a space for us to start talking about it. But when we initially wrote a couple of our case study drafts for our editor, he came back to us and he said, have you noticed that you're you're not talking about it explicitly, but there's an issue of equity running through everything that you're describing. And so that was a great thing for, you know, it was great feedback for us because we went back and we took a much harder look at each of these locations. And one of the things that we discovered was that we were focusing on those sort of classic measures of achievement that we had sort of set out. And yet, if we dug a little deeper, we were seeing opportunity gaps closing all over the stories that we were researching. And so we decided that we should highlight that. As I said, this isn't a scientific, you know, scientific study by any means. However, anecdotally, when we see that opportunity gaps are closing based on the efforts, the collective efficacy efforts, we think that's worth noting. And we think that's a really good lesson for districts to consider. So one of the things that can be done, I mentioned goal consensus before, is we can make opportunity gap an issue that we want to address when we start working on goal consensus, right? We can bring in more diverse voices to empower them as part of the conversation so that we provide that inclusive lens, that equity lens, when we build that cohesive knowledge so that diverse educators have more of an impact in, in understanding and then sharing what's happening in a district, we tend to close, well, you know, we tend to open up more opportunities for our students from that respect as well. So we felt like um, even though we were you know, feeling a little at sea around this topic, it was a really important one to bring forward in terms of an outcome from these schools' efforts, these districts' efforts.
0: Thank you for that, Stephanie. It's critical to recognize how all of our efforts, kind of, you know, are interwoven. You know, great instructional practices. You know, our our goals to involve kids with engagement, they start to blend in equity. I'm not surprised to hear how that just was a thread that emerged, and it's it's powerful. And we we hope that everybody digs into your work and and sees really a lot of the the particulars in your book that really dig in. I'll say, as you start to dig into the work, there's a lot of things that are just incredible for leaders and especially towards the end, that mindset that leaders must have and so forth. At this point, though, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, still along the same, same lines of the topic, um, but if you're going to improve the student experience in every school, what would you want to see done?
2: So I did, I have to say for a lot of years, I was very focused in the world of teacher evaluation. And a number of years ago, I partnered with Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry on a book, Intentional and Targeted Teaching. And we actually kind of deconstructed their approaches that they've they've developed over the years in their schools and developed a set of rubrics that we thought would support teacher leadership and growth. And one of the most important things that we concluded was that the highest level of teaching really needs to be about teachers who are helping to collaborate or collaborating, helping to, to build up their colleagues, right? As opposed to these sort of nuanced, you know, I could just teach a lot better than somebody else. It's more about what can we do to, to expand our collaboration and our collective power. And so that kind of led me into the collective efficacy world, all of that thinking. And so for me, the most important shift we can make in our schools is to back off of that individual accountability and focus on collective responsibility, right? So we can still be individually accountable within the work that we do with others. And and we know now that that collective work has much more power for students. So I'd love to see that shift. And of course, if that shift were to occur, I think the ripple effect would be incredible, right? Because we would start to think more collaboratively around what we, do for our students in terms of engaging them in meaningful instruction, we would support our colleagues when, the thing, when things get tough, let's face it, things can't get much tougher than they've gotten this year. And the collaboration stories are absolutely essential to helping people get through. So I think that that shift away from the individual to this is a team sport, not an individual sport would make a world of difference for our kids.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. Education is a team sport. Somebody better tweet that out before we're done with the show. I don't today. think
2: I'm the first person to have said that. So don't, you know, don't attribute it to me.
1: <laughs> That's fine. You said it here on focus ed. So <laughs> thank you for that. And so you've mentioned some names here and some, some resources. We'd like to to dive a little bit deeper into that. Do you have a set of resources, favorite teaching, learning, or leadership Um, resources that you like to give to leaders? Like when you're doing that type of coaching and something comes up, are there some books that you just generally hand out?
2: So don't hand out, because I will tell you that I, my favorite book of all time is Peter Sanjay's Schools That Learn. So for a leader, that should be on their desk, and it's about yay thick. It's a really big one, so that's why I don't carry it around too often. I always say that I'm a much, I'm much more of a digital reader because I take so many notes. I always wanted to be digital, but that's one of the books I have both digitally and a hard copy. That's how important it is. And there's so many really good learning stories, you know, real schools with real learning stories, which is kind of what we tried to do, Jenny and I tried to do in our book, and then also some really good strategies. How can leaders actually accomplish some of these things? It's filled with mental models and tips and ideas, and it's one of those things you can pick up and put down and just use throughout the rest of your entire career. I also would say that anything by Michael Fullen and Andy Hargreaves, you know, they're gurus, uh, they just keep the thinking moving forward. And also they are the ones I have to say with their book, you know, about professional capital, right? Thinking about that, that collective responsibility. They really, they were there first, right? So, you know, and that's, they continue to keep refining their thinking around that work. So those are, those are my absolute go-to leadership books for educators.
0: All powerhouses, everyone you mentioned, I, I don't think you'd go wrong. Let me ask you, Seven, before I get into the next question, just to drill down a little deeper, do you have a, a formula or a rhythm that you use to read to make sure you are staying on the cutting edge of the research? You just spanned a ton of work, but also across a longer period of time as well. So there is no doubt some is tried and true. I still quote Madeline Hunter all the time. There's elements to Madeline Hunter that will survive the test of time. Mm -hmm. But you also just mentioned a couple that are, are on the cutting edge. Is there a way that you're keeping, you know, in front of the research reading ahead? Like, do you have a formula for that? Would you mind sharing your hack, if you will, (laughs) to that?
2: You, yeah, there, I hate to say it. It's not terribly scientific. It's just, it's being connected on Twitter with all the right people, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, it's the power of collaboration. When I hear, you know, when I listen to a podcast, when I read, you know, when I'm on Twitter and someone recommends a book, I immediately, here's, here's my hat. Hopefully, there's a sample available on Kindle, right? So I download a sample that gives me a quick little taste. I can see the table of contents. Is this going to be something that I can use? And then I buy the book if I, you know, if I feel like that needs to be a part of my library. So that's my kind of affordability hack for lack of a better way of putting it. But I really do rely on just that kind of web of staying in touch I'm a big podcast listener and I have to say I listen outside actually a lot of podcasts outside of education so I do go to a lot of resources that are not sort of official education books and that kind of just keeps circling me back though so you know it's that it's that recommendation you know get a good circle get a good personal learning network circle that's going to keep recommending good stuff for you.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much for sharing that. All of that's incredible. TJ and I have a separate podcast as well from Focus Ed, which is hashtag one thing series. And where you talk about, you know, going outside the walls of education, we recently interviewed Stephen M.R. Covey, uh, the son of Stephen Covey on the speed of trust. And he is the trust guru. So when we're talking about trust, we go to him and, and so we agree with you. Sometimes you got to break down the walls of education and reach out to business, entertainment, sports, whatever, to pull that into our world. As a follow-up uh, or as a, as a question, I want to dig into this about you and where you see yourself three to five years and the greatest impact you'll make. You've made a couple key points that I don't want to lose sight of. One that, you know, heavily into the work of teacher evaluation early on, which I think a lot of everyone on this call who does that works, appreciates that. You have to inspect what you expect. You know, it's a tried and true. Then you went from individual accountability to collective responsibility. Another key, key area that you feel to make you that um, biggest impact you know, three to five years, what's a great next step for you? What do you have to accomplish during that time?
2: So I have to help districts understand just how powerful this is. It's super hard work and it's work really worth doing. And so by sharing the strategies from all all the different places, you know, one of my favorite chapters in our book is Maine Township in Illinois that has one of the most unbelievable coaching academies you've ever seen. There's a set of three high schools and it's just incredibly powerful. Well, they they actually broke a whole lot of rules when they designed it and made a whole lot of mistakes. And we kind of share that because, you know, we learn by what we call the successful failures, right? You got to try it out, see what's working, see what's not working, keep tweaking, keep moving on. So for me, if I'm successful, I'm getting into more and more districts with this idea of, you know, we can be innovative. We can do things differently. We can do the things that are right for us that are gonna change things for our students. And then I work myself out of a job. I get them to a place where they can do all of that without my support. And that's typically how I operate. So, and then I feel like just the proud kind of grandparent. I step back and let them let them go. <laughs> so that would be a sign of success for me.
1: That's a great sign of success for any of us when when the the people who we're coaching and working with uh, are the students and they can do it on their own. I think every teacher, every great teacher feels that way when when the student is able to transfer that knowledge into action. Is there a title of a book that you wish someone would write? <laughs> Whether that's you or somebody else, is there a title out there? that isn't, it just is not on the shelves and you're like, somebody's got to write a book about this.
2: It's, it's me. It's, it's the idea for my next book. One of the things I rely on heavily with my groups to, to really help them learn together as a team are mental models. I feel like mental models, metaphors, analogies are super, super powerful. And so a while ago I got super frustrated because I was, I have to be honest with you, I was really, um, unscientific about I would go back to like which district did I talk about that with do I have a PowerPoint somewhere go back to my notes and pull that out for another district and I finally said you know what I got to be more organized about this I wish somebody would put all of these in one place right mental models that really help team learning and then I decided I figured that's probably got to be my next book so that's going to be it mental models for team learning that's what I'm going to work on.
1: That's fantastic. Mental models for team learning. And how about team accountability too? And so they'll have to do a round two and have you on the show when that comes out and we'll talk about it. Sounds good. (laughs) Well, Stephanie, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. The group I know got a lot out of it. I can always tell when somebody turns to take a note. So I can see that happening and a light bulb's going off and, and that will continue when the show airs. Is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude?
2: No, just that I am super, super open to anybody who has a question, you know, you can find me so easily on Twitter. I'm at Steph Height, or you can, my middle, my little company is called Tiger Solutions. You can just Google it and find us pretty easily. And I get people who just reach out to me completely blindly and say, Hey, I'm working on my dissertation or, Hey, I'm really interested about collective efficacy," And I love talking with folks. So just please feel free.
1: Fantastic. That's a great invitation for everybody who's listening. You heard it here first on Focus Ed, Dr. Stephanie Arzanetti height everyone, a virtual round of applause for our guests today. Please don't forget to follow the schoolhouse 302com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and much more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors hey joe you know what leaders need these days
0: what's that tj
1: sleep a good night's rest self-care we've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup leaders need sleep one of the
0: number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep i hear you but you know what i'm so tired i don't even like thinking about you know getting a good night's sleep but you know, do tell. How do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem. Is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor, with thirty thousand plus five star reviews. Their patented sleeping cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping within 24 hours of your
0: purchase,
1: it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout you go to ghostbed.com, you get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow, that's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral if you get somebody else a good night's sleep. Better sleep for you, better leadership. Ghostbed.com, you can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.